published or not, has been on air for over 20 years. And in that time, it's been hosted by Jan Goldsmith. Well, just recently, over the last seven years, I've been joined by David McLean. We'll be talking about text, discussing words and ideas. With local authors, authors from interstate, or sometimes even from other countries. You can stream it live or find it on your favourite podcast app. So join us every Thursday at 11.30 on 3CR. I've been working on my rewrite, that's right. I'm going to change the ending. Going to throw away my title and toss it in the train. David and I have both read a book with a murder in it this week. Who doesn't like a wedding? And that is exactly how Sally Hepworth's latest book, The Younger Wife, starts. And welcome back to Published or Not, Sally. (laughs) Oh, it's good to be back. I think it's been almost perhaps every one of my books I've been here. So it's good to be here. Well, it's good to read your books. By page four, the marriage has taken place and the wedding party, the bride, the groom, his two adult daughters, Rachel and Tully, have gone into the sacristy to sign the register. And we're going to start with Sally reading what happened. With the bridal party out of sight, the guests start chatting among themselves. Wasn't that lovely? What a beautiful bride. Isn't it wonderful that he found love again? Couldn't have happened to a nicer man. It seems as good a time as any to take my leave. I gather my handbag and do a quick scan for the nearest exit and I'm about to ask a young man next to me if he can let me by when I hear it. A young woman's scream and, a fraction of a second later, a dense, meaty thud. I rise at the same time as every other guest. I peer towards the altar but my view is obscured by large hats and bald heads. I'm craning to see through the gaps between the guests when the celebrant reappears. Her face is ashen and her white pantsuit is covered in blood. (gasps) Well, we do know that ex-wife Pamela also entered the sacristy with a heavy brass candlestick. But what do we know about Pamela, the ex-wife? Pamela is in a facility with dementia and so it's a bit of a process in order to get to this this wedding which starts in the very first scene of the book but then we go backwards. It's what I call an upside down book where uh, we we have the, the action up front and then we go back and unravel everything that happened. Well this younger wife knew the ex-wife and was happy to have her at the wedding. How did they meet Well, the way that Heather came into their lives is that she was the interior designer of a remodel that they were doing on their home. And at that point, Pamela had already been diagnosed with dementia and she was just a little bit confused. And so as they went through the process, which was longer than it normally would have been to to restyle their house. So it was a professional engagement that led from employee to girlfriend, fiancé, and now wife. Mm -hmm. I'm going to ask Sally Hepworth to read from page six now. So this is when Tully meets Heather, the new wife, or the new soon-to-be wife, and Tully says, Heather looked like a New York fashion editor. She wore an uncreased white shirt with tailored black pants and flat gold sandals, and she carried a Burberry trench over one arm. Her dark hair was centre-parted and tucked behind her ears. 
Her lips were painted a tasteful nude pink. The most striking thing about her was her youth, which Tully had been warned about, yet still found herself inadequately prepared for. 34, three years younger than Tully, one year younger than Rachel, 29 years younger than Dad. The funny thing was, Mum was six years older than Dad. I like older women, he'd said for most of Tully's life. And Tully sort of did a bit of a judgment too, quote from the book. She thought Heather looked doe-eyed, soft-featured, chock-full of cunning. But Tully has her own problems. Can you hint at a few? Yeah, they all have got a few hang-ups in this book. Tully is, is no different. She was a very fun character to create because she's very neurotic and and high-powered and also uh, and high anxiety. And so, yeah, she's found a way to cope with her anxiety and her stress. Well, she has got financial problems now because her yes. husband's lost a bit of money. And she has the problem with kleptomania. The first time they go to this getting to know you lunch, she stole Heather's purse. <laughs> and you yeah. just sort of, and it builds from there. Oh, goodness. As you said, she's hard to get to know. Older sister Rachel didn't know all of Tully's problems, but knew, and this is a quote getting close to her was like trying to get close to a helicopter. You ended up windswept and breathless. And occasionally you lost your head. Good one. (laughs) But Rachel, now she's got a successful business making wedding cakes. She's got her problems too. She does. She's got a real preoccupation with food and, and food has become something that has comforted her over her whole life. But she also just likes to be in control of the ordering when she goes out for dinner and she's just a gorgeous cook. And that's something that has been a great joy in her life, but it's also linked to something which is a great tragedy in her life as well. She might find food a distraction to her problems. And Tully, what does she think about a big sister? Funny, charming, sickeningly beautiful, enviable body but no romantic interest. She's never been on a date. Well, so that's Rachel and Tully, the two daughters. Well, how would you describe the family? Well, I love to use the word dysfunctional because at the beginning of the book, they all pride themselves on the fact that they're a very well-functioning family and that they do things properly and they all really love each other and care about each other. Heather looks at the family and thinks, oh, this is the family that I want to be in. You know, they're, they're wealthy, they're well-educated, and this is what she aspires to be. But she didn't quite have that background. And I'm going to ask Sally Hepworth to read from page 47 about Heather, the younger wife. Growing up, Heather had lived in a single-storey orange brick home on a housing estate that had cows and sheep on one side and an electrical substation on the other. Her clothes came from op shops or best and less or from the daughter of mum's friend who was a couple of years older and favoured dark ripped clothing or skin type miniskirts. Her friends lived in similar homes and had similar clothes. While other kids were learning to ride a bike, Heather was learning to bring her father a beer. While other kids were learning phone manners, Heather was learning to answer the phone and the door with the words, daddy is at work. While other kids were having their first alcoholic drink, Heather was already switching from wine and beer to something stronger. Heather knows that she's made some bad decisions in the past, often due to alcohol. 
She had to work at hiding her difference. So she wanted to be in this big family. What did she tell them that happened to her own family? She says her parents were killed in a car accident, has a lot of reasons that she wants to turn her back on her own upbringing. Sally, COVID makes an impact in this book. Tally has problems with lockdown because of a kleptomania. She can't get out as often. And when she's got the stuff, she can't get rid of it. (laughs) Yeah. One interesting point on lockdown. And also, (laughs) if your job was in catering, that was also a problem. So we do come across Darcy, who's just such a lovely surprise packet. There's multiple narrators. And then there is a woman at the wedding who pops up occasionally to give us updates. And we hear about the arrival of the ambulances and the police questioning all the people. And then the crowd had nowhere else to go. So they all went to the closest pub where they juggled different theories of what may have happened and who did it. But you don't disclose who this narrator is until the very end, along with why and what happened. Were you out to write a murder mystery this time? Did it just turn (laughs) out that way? Well, the first thing that is funny about what you said is that this book is also available in the American audience as well. And I remember my editor saying when I said that crowd, when they didn't go to the wedding, were swept along to the pub, she said, but would people do that? Is that realistic that people would go to the pub? And I said, this is Australia. Yes, we go to the pub whenever we possibly can. Of course, that makes sense. Was it always meant to be a murder mystery? I mean, I guess, yes, because I had this a very clear idea of the first scene where they're at the wedding and someone is murdered. That was something that came to me very quickly. And But I often, The Mother-in-Law was probably the first book that I wrote that was technically a, a murder mystery or a crime novel. It, it's not about how am I going to get a crime into this book. It's more about who are these characters, what's the book about and what's going to happen. It's always characters and and plot and story first and then the genre just works itself out down the road for me. On the serious side, you've written about how trauma experienced in childhood affects an adult in a variety of anxieties. Did you do some research on that? I did, yes. I did. There were quite a few topics to research in this book. There was... Overeating as a response to trauma, um, which is something I uh, spent a lot of time researching because it is different from other kinds of eating disorders. And, and that was a really interesting one. Kleptomania, as you mentioned, was fascinating and, and quite different from what I thought it was, where I thought kleptomania was about getting things, taking things, having things. Uh, in fact, the disorder, or it, it's quite closely associated with OCD and to do with the impulse control. And it's not about the things, it's about the taking and about not being able to resist the urge to take. And in most cases, people who steal things don't want the things and they do often just get rid of the things afterwards. And so that was fascinating as well. And this book took me into some really interesting places. I had a phone conversation with someone once who had had a, a family member in prison and how that process had had, had gone uh, when she had visited him. And, you know, these books, they take us to all sorts of places. And, and that's probably one of the parts that I enjoy most. Well, from the serious side to the lighter side, 
there is your beloved great aunt Gwen's hot water bottle, which inspired the whole story. It sure did. So that story was true story. That the, the little bit of truth that inspired this book was that I got a, a phone call from my great aunt. She called me about two years ago and she was in the hospital, but she wasn't interested in telling me anything about being in hospital. She just said, Sally, I need you to go to my house and I need you to get my hot water bottle. And she wouldn't be dissuaded. I, I said, I'll bring, I'll bring one of my hot water bottles. You know, I can buy you one. No, she wanted that one. And then she told me that it was hidden somewhere, quite kind of unusual. And so as I drove to collect it, I thought something's in this hot water bottle. My first thought, perhaps strangely, was body part. <laughs> She's hiding a human heart in there or something. I've been watching two Netflix specials, I think, in lockdown. I dro- and I rang my brothers on the way and I said, what do you think's in there? And we were all theorizing and I got there finally, got the hot water bottle and it was full of cash and which was not uninteresting. It wasn't as interesting as a human heart, but in general, I was intrigued. And when I took it to her in the hospital and I said, what's going on? Are you a granny drug dealer? You know, where has this money come from? And of course, she's 93. She comes from the, you know, distrustful of banks kind of generation. And there was quite a lot of money in there. In fact, by the time we discovered what it was, my brain had already gone. You know, I, I just thought there is a story idea here. And, uh, and away we went. So, yeah, that was where it all began. The younger wife is Heather Wisher. How did you choose the character's name? So Heather Wisher is a real person. She is actually a bookstagrammer and she entered a competition that I held on social media a couple of years ago when I was starting to write this book that the prize was having your name in, in a book for a character. And usually it would be a small character, a minor character, but I just thought, I just love that name and I could see it as this character. So of course it's not meant to represent her and it's a fictional character, but she was thrilled to have her name in the book forever. A stepmother younger than the groom's daughters creates uncertainty in the family with secrets and lies being revealed. Sally Hepworth has written another page turner in The Younger Wife, which starts with a wedding and a murder. Oh, Sally, just such a good read. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And now it's David and his murder. My interview today poses some intriguing challenges. We have a book entitled Just Murdered, which is based on the television series Ms. Fisher's Modern Murder Mysteries, which was inspired by the Franny Fisher novels by Kerry Greenwood. Helping us unpack all of this is Catherine Kovacic, whose incriminating fingerprints can be found in the descriptions and references made in the storytelling. So, Catherine... Welcome back to 3CR. Thank you, David. Lovely to be talking to you again. The plot line of this novel is based on the screenplay by Deb Cox. And I'm wondering how much of a constraint that would have been for you as an author who have, in fact, written your own detective novels. Wow. Where to begin unpacking that? It was both constraint and, you know, I thought it was going to make it easier to start off. I thought, ha, plot's written for me. Hey ho. And, uh, but it, it was a bit of a constraint because, you know, there were points where I thought, ooh, I'd like to, you know, point the finger in that direction or go off down this road. Um, I had a lot of license to play with it. 
but obviously it still had to to follow the the basic story through and we had to come to the the same conclusion obviously by by roughly the same route so it, it was a little bit constricting but I did have a lot of latitude but in turning a script into a novel you've had to flesh out the scenes now for example Peregrine Fisher, who's our heroine now, breaks into the Adventuresses Club, which is a minute or two in the film, but you have had to build that moment. So, for example, the wall was too high to climb, but at least the top was smooth and free of anything sharp or spiky. Clearly, the Adventuresses were more concerned with privacy than security, picking up her case Peregrine walked further along Greenwood Place until she found what she was looking for. At the furthest end of the wall that marked the boundary of the adventuress's domain was a neat row of galvanised metal garbage bins, their lids firmly in place. Peregrine looked back up the street, but she was entirely alone and far enough away from the busy main road that she was unlikely to be seen. It only took her a few minutes to arrange several of the bins in a rough pyramid high enough so that with a small jump, she should be able to grab the top of the wall. And we also get references to the uh, swish of the branches and a dull thud. And so there's an incredible amount of detail, especially where the senses are concerned. I had a lot of fun, including all that. And, you know, I do wear my history hat from time to time. So dipping into the 1960s was, was a lot of fun. But, of course, you know, on television, they had the advantage of the jump cut where you can go from Peregrine being, you know, having a door slammed in her face to her teetering on top of a, a pile of rubbish bins and, uh, and the viewer comes along with you for the ride. But you can't quite do that in a book without people going, wait, what? So um, we, we needed, or I needed rather, to fill in those spaces. Um, but also it was a way to introduce readers to the Adventuresses Club and to that, that part of Melbourne and to the building itself, which, which is a, a very big part of, of the whole scene for Peregrine. But you're also adding this notion of psychology, if I can put it that way, more concerned with privacy than security. So there's a fleshing out not just of the sensory detail, but of also the attitudes of the people involved. Yeah, I think the Adventuresses Club of the Antipodes, you know, they're a very particular group of women and, um, and as we get to know them and their various skills and personalities, you know, it all unfolds for us and we start to understand perhaps why they're a bit more protective of their privacy. But, um, you know, security is perhaps not such an issue because we also find that within their ranks, they have some women who are very capable. Um, they have people who are capable of... of you know, dealing with security and theoretically they shouldn't have too many security issues. So it really is more about privacy, but dropping those little bits and pieces in there so that you don't need to, to get all get it all at once. You know, just, oh, okay. So it's more about privacy. That's fine. And then we can just move along and uh, and find it. And of course, Peregrine by this stage has already been excluded from the Adventurers Club. So we, we kind of have to unpack a little bit about why that door slash gate was slammed in her face to start with. To take a step even further back, the TV series is a homage to Kerry Greenwood, who conceived the Franny Fisher novels, but were there important aspects of her work that needed to be retained? Only very slightly, because uh, Peregrine is entirely Deb Cox and Fiona Egger's creation, so that's the Every Cloud Productions team. So they made the original 
Miss Fisher, the Franny Fisher television series. And then they've created Peregrine, who is Franny's niece, uh, as the ongoing part of the series. So there are elements in there that draw us back to, to Franny and Kerry. So the Adventuresses Club is, is one of those because um, we find out that Franny was the president or helped establish the Adventuresses Club. And we also find out, you know, why Peregrine has come now. And that is because Franny has disappeared in a plane crash somewhere over Papua New Guinea and may or may not be deceased, which is what's brought Peregrine to town. She has potentially inherited her aunt's fortune. But I'm also thinking of the notion of the role of women. So uh, Phryne and Peregrine were independent and the historical detail. So two different periods of time, but the intimate knowledge of the nuances, the fashions, the style of the period, they both reflect that. Yeah, and I think that's a, that's a very important part of the Fisher world. Certainly, you know, Kerry has a huge fan base for her, her 1920s, early 30s based series. And I think um, that was something of what we've sort of tried to bring to the 1960s, that idea of the culture, the era, uh, the fashion in the background, and particularly this mid-60s period, you know, that Camelot era where it was, it was all about the Kennedys in the US and uh, women's rights were coming to the fore. So it was a period of real change and challenge and a period of real optimism too. And I think Peregrine is, is you know, that's, that's a perfect period for her to be in. So it's a very big part of the Fisher world to have that sort of the social uh, and the visual background to it. And I can say visual because it is quite visual in the book too. We have two murders in Just Murdered. There's a fashion model who's killed early on and designer Florence Astor, who happens to be a member of the Adventuresses Club. But the clues you provide seem to be more detailed than the clues in the television series. And if I can say it without giving anything away, the stockings are a murder weapon, but you also mention pantyhose. There's more detail when it comes to the ordering of a wig. Have you had to actually construct these clues again? How did it work? Well, I had the, the original script from that, that episode, which was maybe about 15 or 20 pages. And my brief was to make it, you know, a 70 to 75,000 word book. And um, what I did was I went and wrote down the plot points and then I completely got rid of the script and just went for it myself because I didn't sort of want to be overly influenced. But I think there were elements of, um, part, I mean, part of it was the fashion, you know, the, the, the model was wearing a miniskirt. So we had this little comment about pantyhose versus stockings for that, that period. But also I think because you have that expanded format rather than the visual television format, there needed to be a, a little bit more of a teasing out of the clues and a little bit more planting just to sort of, to make sure that you hadn't forgotten what happened back there on page 24 by the time you got to page 124. So there had to be a few little extra bits in there just to keep those things sort of fresh and happening through the book. I also had fun trying to work out where you began and the script ended in some ways. For example, there would have been perhaps some editing of the original screenplay scenes would have had to have been cut out perhaps for time constraints and the like. Were you adding extra scenes? I mean, there's, there's an extra task for Peregrine to become a member of the club, which 
is in the novel, but not in the film. So how much was you? How much was the script? I'm so glad you couldn't see where one ended and the other began. Um, it was really me adding it in. So as I said, I had a, a very short script. So anything that was like the, the additional task was my extra task and the extra scenes were my extra scenes. So as I said, I, I had a very free hand um, and a lot of dialogue with um, with every cloud when I wanted to sort of, you know, flesh out a character a bit more in a certain way or do something, I could go to them and say, hey, can I make this person do this? Or, you know, does that fit in with the character? And they were wonderful about getting back to me. But adding scenes in was, was me, really. That solves that because I know how films are made <laughs> and sometimes scenes have to be cut uh, for the expediency of time constraints. But, yes, I wasn't sure how it worked in this case. Peregrine is an interesting character, somewhat irresponsible perhaps. I think we'll call her a rough diamond rather than irresponsible, David. I think she's she's never had the opportunities and she's never had the money, but she's been brought up right, basically, um, albeit, you know, a little bit roughly. And it's, it's been a, a childhood in motion, shall we say, although she's beyond certainly beyond childhood now. So uh, it's, we're buffing off the rough edges of Peregrine as we go. I think that's the best way to describe her. She is a natural talent when it comes to investigation. So in many ways, she reflects Phryne in that regard. There's also a similar sexual tension Phryne had it with the investigator she worked with. Uh, Peregrine works with Detective James Steed. It does raise this notion of gender roles and the role of women and I'm just wondering if the role of women changed between the period in which the Phryne novels were set and the Peregrine novels were set. I think it did but I think perhaps the period where Peregrine is set is when things really began to change so certainly there'd, there'd been a groundswell you know Phryne is that post-World War One period but I think it was World War Two when we really started to see uh, gender roles changing, you know, women stepping into, into more roles, into the workforce more. And it was when we're getting up into the 1960s that we started to see that real push for equality. Although, of course, this book and the show obviously is set in a department store and you can still see very much that gender lines are very divided in the department store. You know, we've got the men in the, working in the appliance section and, you know, the women working in the cosmetics counter and the fashion and, oops, if you get married, you can't be a model anymore. You know, so it's still very much that gender divide. Um, but, you know, Peregrine's on the cusp of it and she, she's going to push through. She's going to smash that glass ceiling. No question. And there is, of course, Detective James Steed's boss, who really is the worst of chauvinism in, in many ways. Absolutely. But I think, that, you know, they were thick on the ground in those days. And I think certainly in the police force, you definitely would have found a, a, a senior police officers like that who just you know a, a woman in the police force and let alone a, a lady detective out there on her own so um, I think you know probably one of many that Peregrine will come up against in her time. Last but not least fashion and style Just Murdered is set in the 60s and it, it's such a vibrant period in many ways colour but as well as design I think it's, it's a brilliant period, um, you know, mid-60s, so we're, we're still sort of, hemlines aren't too high yet and we're not up into that sort of the hippie kind of style. So we still have those classic Jackie Onassis sort of looks, for, for want of a better term, you know, the, the nice classically cut suit. And 
we can we can think of the, the older matrons in their their hats and twin sets but we've got these young girls who have got you know the hemlines are going as high as their mothers will let them arms are bare you know jean shrimpton at the melbourne cup all that sort of thing so it's a great time with and color and vibrancy optimism yeah. i think is the best way to sum up the fashion of the period did you have fun researching it I had tremendous fun researching it. I might have, I might have, you know, there might sort of be some things, vintage pieces in my wardrobe anyway, David, just quietly between the two of us because, you know, it's a fun thing to collect. Well, if the listener wants to find out more about Ms. Fisher's modern murder mystery entitled Just Murdered and immerse themselves in the detail, which goes a lot further than the television series, they need to pick up a copy of Just Murdered the author, Catherine Kovacic, and it is an Alan and Unwin release. So, Catherine, thank you very much for talking with me today. Thank you, David. Absolute pleasure. Will there be more murders next week? Listen in 